Hey guys, welcome to Savvy Sabs Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Salvati. I have an awesome special guest today. His name is Lee Camp. He's a comedian and he's the host of Redacted Tonight. Thanks so much for coming, Lee. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Cool. So I want to get into the Tulsa massacre because I saw you did a video recently with Graham Elwood about this. But first, I want to ask you, like, why did you decide to start Redacted tonight? Like, what prompted you to start that show? Um, well, so I, I, I started as a stand-up comedian. Uh, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to, I wanted to write comedy, then I wanted to perform it. And, but I never, it wasn't intended to really be political. Um, I became kind of, uh, you know, woken up to everything that was going on in our country, in the world. Uh, I think the Iraq invasion helped push that along because it, it made no sense to me that we were going over there and killing people in Iraq for no reason. And I started looking for outside media sources, uh, you know, so then I found uh, some of the writers like Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn and things like that and uh, got to them in my early 20s. And and they they helped push me even further. And then I kind of I, I was performing every night of the week. I've I've there there was 15 years of my life where I I was performing every night, sometimes three times a night. So I've done thousands of stand-up comedy performances. And it kind of felt like if I'm gonna get on a stage and I'm gonna speak my mind and I'm gonna talk about whatever it is I want to talk about. I should use that for something important. I should be talking about important issues, even if I'm getting a laugh, even if the goal is to make people laugh and uh, piss themselves and choke on their drinks. Uh, it should still be while informing, while you know, pushing them to think about things they hadn't thought of before. And you know, some of the time I was doing this at the, the, some of these shows are one a.m. in New York City. People are drunk out of their minds, and I'm still trying to make them think about why the hell we're bombing countries thousands of miles away that the soldiers couldn't even find on a map. And it, you know, I, I remember one of the comedians who was hosting the show after I got off the stage. He was he, he one time he said to me, he was like. God damn it, Camp! Why are you doing all your stuff about politics? Just it's one a.m. Just tell dick jokes and get off the stage. And he was he was half kidding but half serious. Like what what am I doing in the middle of their show? And but that was where everything kind of went from there. So it just grew from there, and then eventually uh, I had a successful video series that allowed me to get a TV show on one of the only networks that will actually allow you to be anti-war, anti-corporate, anti-capitalism, talking about all those things. And I, I write all my own stuff. I've never been censored. And you really can't say that for just about any other comedy news thing on television. So. Awesome. So um, I saw you did a, a video recently with Graham Elwood about the Tulsa massacre and I was curious because um, a lot of people I've talked to recently, like they were just hearing about this. A lot of people just didn't know about it. And I knew about it growing up as a kid because my grandparents told me about it. Hmm. But I noticed like they never- Where, where are you from? Uh, different places because my dad was military. Okay. So did you have any connection to Oklahoma or anything? I did not. But my my grandparents like grew up in North Carolina and one of the Black Wall Streets was in Durham, North Carolina. Mm. So my grandparents told me about it when I was younger. But Because was it was another one where there was like a full on, was it Durham? I know it was in North Carolina, like a full on takeover of the government and destruction of the Black Wall Street. And mm -hmm. yeah. 
And I was always curious as to why they didn't teach us about it in school, because I didn't learn about it in school at all. And I was curious, like, when did you first hear about it? And why do you think they didn't teach us about this in school? Yeah, I mean, I can't claim to have, you know, uh, well, let me tell you, I knew about it since I was five years old. No, I I learned about it a few years ago, uh, I think, like uh, too many people. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I think one of the things that's driven me uh, through a lot of my career and a lot of kind of pushing people to become informed is when I find out about things and they it blows my mind that we aren't taught about them. Uh, I remember one of the first videos I had that did really well on YouTube way before I had a TV show was when I just told people that the only trial that was ever held in the death of Martin Luther King was in 1999. And they found that James Earl Ray did not kill King and that it was a combination of, you know, Lloyd Jowers and Lloyd Jowers and uh, government agencies. And, and the New York Times even covered it at the time, but they had a little article in the back of like, you know, section D7 or whatever. And, and it's just like, how are we not learning about this? How is this so suppressed? And, and so I always try and cover those stories because they, they, it amazes me that we are not taught about this stuff. And of course, uh, you know, why aren't we taught about it in school is our school history to this day is just the most whitewashed, uh, patriarchal, pro-capitalist history you could ever get. Uh, it, I, it, it amazed me. I knew, so I knew growing up that like Columbus wasn't what we were told to some degree, but I didn't, I was probably, you know, either near 20 or around 20 years old when I first read that his fucking journal entries have, have him talking about how easily he can enslave people and how if they don't bring him gold, he just cuts off their hands or noses. And, and it's like, those type of things are just so amazing to hear when you grew up being told Christopher Columbus discovered the new world. And when we have a test, you have to write that answer. You have to write that false answer. Christopher Columbus, great guy, pioneer, discovered the new world. If you want to get a good grade. And we knew if you're six years old or eight years old, you know, the whole, your whole world, meaning your family, your teachers, everything are judging you by what gr those grades are. You know, are you doing well in school? Everybody, every adult you meet says, how are you doing in school? And if you're doing poorly, wow, what a reject, what a loser, what a sad kid. Why aren't you doing well? I guess you don't care. Like, and yet you're expected to put a fake reality down on that page or you will fail out of that class. And it's, it's just mind blowing. I remember another book that was pivotal for me when I was early twenties was uh, lies. My teacher told me, which also has the stories of Columbus in there, but has a bunch of other stories about just straight up lies that we're told by our teachers. It's, it's phenomenal. So of course, ignoring completely the Tulsa massacre or at, you know, at best, if they mention it, it's called the Tulsa race riot, which I feel like a riot requires two sides, not just a straight up massacre. And it, it's, of course, they're going to ignore it because it, it upends the, the, uh, belief in American exceptionalism, the belief in, yes, America has faults, but we've always tried to remedy those faults. And we've always tried to, to, to fight for equality. And you, you look through the books and that is absolutely not true. Uh, America has not remedied its faults. America continues to perpetrate those faults and, and those, those horrors.
And, you know, now in, in a large way, at least with the bombs, et cetera, it's done overseas. Uh, and, you know, one of the biggest war criminals just died, Donald Rumsfeld. And yet you look at some of these articles. I just went through the New York Times article about him. And for the most part, celebratory. You know, what an impressive guy. Was defense secretary twice. Oh, my goodness. You know, like we're supposed to celebrate war criminals. Exactly. Um, how do you feel about because this is something that mainstream media was praising. How do you feel about Joe Biden being, I guess, the first president to actually, you know, mention Tulsa on the 100 year anniversary? Do you feel that it was genuine or do you feel that he was just playing to to black people, which he tends to do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's him and it's this system that knows when the system is being threatened by a new level of awakening by a new new facts or information that have come out, it will do things to protect itself, to defend itself. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be a Juneteenth holiday. I'm not saying that it's not better to have the president acknowledge the Tulsa massacre than not a hundred you know a hundred years later. But it, those type of things are only done as as a window dressing, as a curtain to cover the true horrors that are behind them. And if he wanted to actually, for that to actually mean anything, then he would have said, I'm acknowledging the Tulsa massacre. And also I am throwing out my 94 crime bill that he helped write, uh, th that he pushed for that. Honestly, Clinton probably wouldn't have been signing it if it hadn't been for Joe Biden. And that it has doubled over doubled the prison population in this country. It's one of the most racist, things in terms of imprisonment that this country has has done and he sh if he wants to actually mean anything it needs to be those kind of large actions uh rather than just you know i'm acknowledging something 100 years ago that shouldn't have happened to me that it it it, it almost is har is more harmful than good because it makes some people who are not informed uh some people who are kind of your average liberals etc uh view it as, oh, thank goodness we have a non-racist president in the White House. <laughs> right. I, I totally get that. Um, for a lot of people that may not be aware, like during that time, there were multiple Black Wall Streets in the country. And here are some of them. There was the Haiti community in Durham, North Carolina. There was Jackson Ward in Richmond, Virginia, Fourth Avenue District in Birmingham, Alabama. And there was also Boley, Oklahoma. And for those who don't know, Black wealth was actually really good at that point. That was the one time in this country where black people actually were able to continue to, to turn the black dollar, like in the community, but all of those communities were burned down. So the question that comes up even today is we see, and we've seen that since the 2008 housing crisis, black wealth has significantly declined in this country how do we get back there and could we actually get back there? And I want to get your thoughts on that. Do you think that something like that is possible again and why or why not? Yeah. So I think to, to figure out why it is so difficult to get back there is to ask why the, the burning down of those areas happened. And yes, there, there's racism, but if you look a little deeper at it, Capitalism, as, as economist Richard Wolff says, capitalism has a democracy problem. If everybody truly votes and truly has their voice heard, 
then the 90% of us who are not millionaires will dominate the society instantly. We would instantly uh, say, hey, why do we have these people that are egregiously rich? And the, the wealth would be evened out and we would go, hey, we live in a country that's actually post-scarcity. If we actually dealt with our, our systems correctly, uh, everybody could have a house, everybody could have clothing, everybody could have regular food, uh, wouldn't need to work that hard, be easy to do. And if we had true democracy and true uh, understanding of that and a, and, a, and a union, a unity between the bottom 90%, then the, the rich are screwed. They, their system of exploitation and uh, complete control is just destroyed. And so they can't have that. And they need to tell the poor people in this country, because it would be a class war, they need to tell the poor people who to take their anger out on. Don't take it out on us, the rich. And that is always the other. It's going to always be the other. So for the white poor people, it's, well, look at those, look at those black people over there. They're getting rich and they're, you know, Wall Street over there and, and they're really exploiting you and, 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 and destroying your life and whatever other lies they need to tell. And nowadays you, you still hear that, but you also hear uh, the immigrants and you hear uh, foreign countries, China, Russia, Iran, they're all, they're, that's the real problem. It's them. It's not, it's not us, the rich, the oligarchy that run the society and are actually exploiting you and are actually deciding that you can't have a $15 minimum wage. It's the great other, those who are, who are uh, stealing from you and making it so you don't have an easy life. And they did the same things back then. And so you have a, a poor and, and maybe to some degree middle class that took their anger out on the Black Wall Street because that, that's why I'm poor is because they're not. Uh, they're the ones exploiting me when in fact it should have been taken out on the rich white people that owned the entirety of American society. Uh, and, and you see this again and again. And anytime people unify, it becomes far more dangerous. So you look at, you know, the Black Panthers and you look at other organizations that have started to unify people uh, and started to create a class war because they were pointing their anger at the, at the, at the uh, accurate place, which was the rich and the powerful. And every time that happens, you see uh, the system get into high gear to defend itself and to attack those groups and to either arrest them or sue them into oblivion or burn down their whole neighborhoods, like with the move bombing. Uh, and you see it again and again. But so, so to get back to a place where, where I think people in general can be thriving, you gotta, you've, you've got to acknowledge that, you've got to address that. Um, but then of course, there's also overlaying that there's systemic racism in our country. And, it it is powerful and it needs to be taught. I think you know a lot of this begins with education. Uh, people need to realize the level of racism, which I always try and acknowledge. Like even when I'm not covering a, a very race specific issue, I try and acknowledge at least in the segment that you know this type of issue that's bad for everyone is even worse. Like if it's a housing issue, it's even worse for the black community or the immigrant community because we live in such a, a system that is so systemically racist and some people still don't understand what that means. I feel like I, I guess, especially white people. 
And, you know, one of the best examples I try and give people who think that systemic racism isn't a thing, you know, there's a couple of racist people. There's some, yeah, there's some racist people out there, but that's not the system. Uh, is they did a study, study and you're 50% less likely to just get the first job interview. So to walk into the door of the office and get the first interview, you're 50% less likely if you just have a black sounding name meaning you haven't even written the race on the form, your resume is identical to the person next to you, and they haven't seen you, they don't know your skin color, but it's you're 50% less likely if you have a black sounding name. And then imagine how much less likely you are if they find out that you actually are black. So it's like, it's like it, uh, succeeding in a society that is set up like that is like, Yes, you can do it. They, you know, exist. Ben Carson and and Her Herman Cain, I guess he died, but those people exist to become multimillionaires and they're black, but it's like succeeding in mud. It's it's like walking, yes, everybody's running uphill and you're waist deep in mud running uphill. So, you know, it can happen. It's just, if we don't address these issues and we act like they aren't there, then of course, you're never going to see a large, successful uh, black culture, I guess. Agreed. So, um, I don't know if, if you're familiar with Steve Cox, but he's running as independent in California. So he mentioned something, um, about a study, I believe it was out of Princeton about, uh, capitalism and, uh, political power. And he said that poor people actually don't have any political power, even though there are so many more of them than wealthy people. How do you feel about that? What's your take on that? Yeah, it's very true. Uh, I mean, and, and it's for multiple reasons. I mean, yes, there's a there's an education lack there. So people say, well, poor builders don't understand that they need to, uh, you know, do A, B, and C to have political power. They should run for office. They should uh, vote more. So many of them don't even vote. Uh, so, yeah, there, there might be some education gap, but far beyond that, it's that they're not represented, you know, and, and I'm talking, I'm talking, uh, truly poor here. I'm, I'm talking, uh, bottom 20% or something. Uh, they're not represented anywhere. They're not represented in our media because obviously if you get a media job, you are not going to be poor. Even if you were poor walking in, uh, you, if you get a, a political position, you're not going to be poor instantaneously. Uh, and most of our politicians are not even going to be poor when they're elected because of our ridiculous, uh, you know, money owned political system. In most countries, it is not like this. In most countries, candidates do not spend millions upon millions of dollars to win a congressional seat. In most countries, you don't run for office for two straight years. And so we have a country that is worse than almost all other countries in that the rich really do own the system. They can, they, they're the only ones with enough money to run for office. And in order for someone who's not rich to get the money to run for office, who do they have to go to? They have to go to the rich. And what do they have to do to get the rich to donate to them? They have to say the things the rich want to hear. So even the people who aren't rich going in are still favoring, the, are going to have to favor the rich because that's the ones writing their checks. Um, and you might find a rich person who does some positive things. Let's say a rich person who wants police reform to some degree. 
uh, or a rich person who thinks that our prison state being the largest prison state in the world is horrible or a rich person who doesn't want us to be at war anymore. But you're not going to find a rich person who's really going after capitalism or almost never. So, it, it, you know, there's multiple reasons the poor are not represented almost at all in our system. Um, and, and, you know, the media is a big factor in that. They, the, the media, if you just look at what stories the media cover, the media are going to largely, yes, they'll do a little thing here and there about how, oh, housing is tough right now. But they're not going out to eviction strikes and, uh, you know, rent strikes and going out to, to people boarding up their homes to stop the bank from stealing it. They're not going out there. They're talking about how, uh, you know, Uber's doing well or how uh, Elon, what Elon Musk is up to this week. They're talking about rich issues, the issues the rich care about. You know, restaurants aren't doing as well as they used to during the pandemic. That's a rich issue. And it's just like all of that stuff is 90% of what the media covers because the media is rich. And even if they're not, even for the lower reporters that are not multimillionaires, they're still doing fine. So you just are not going to have many people at all addressing truly poor, the, the true issues of the poor. Agreed. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned Fred Hampton earlier because, well, I'm a part of the Fred Hampton Leftist Network. And I remember when I was in school, when they taught us about the Black Panthers, they presented them as this radical, like militant group. And it wasn't until I got older and I started doing like my own research and watching movies about like the Black Panthers and documentaries. And I realized, oh my gosh, they lied to me. I can't believe I believe <laughs> this stuff, man. Sure. But even today, um, before that movie came out this year, Judas and the Messiah, a lot of people still didn't know who Fred Hampton was, had never like heard about him. What's your take on like the Black Panthers and, you know, the FBI involvement with all of that and what the Black Panthers like did for the community? Yeah, the 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 Black Panthers did so much for the com community that people need to learn about. I mean, I don't claim to be some kind of uh, excellent scholar on the entire history of the Black Panthers, but but the the you know few books I've read, you can learn very easily about uh, all the impressive things that the Black Panthers did for their community. I mean, this is an organization where ninety percent of what they're doing is is feeding uh, children, watching them after school, putting together community watches so that they have a safe community that is not only safe if cops are patrolling it. Uh, all of these things they're putting together and doing a really imp impressive job. And sure, 10% was fighting the cops because the cops were a fascist uh, occupying force in their neighborhoods. And all that we're told, you know, in, a, in our media, in our, in, in our history classes, if they even talk about the Black Panthers, is that 10%. We're told that little 10% and we're led to believe that is the entirety of the Black Panthers. And actually, uh, while I very much liked a lot of, uh, of the Fred Hampton movie that, that HBO put out, um, I think that it did Fred Hampton justice in terms of showing him as a fully fledged human being that had you know, love and concerns. And it, it was not just uh, militancy. It was, it was a real living and breathing human being. I think that was good. But my complaint with it is that I felt like every, uh, every time you saw the Black Panthers together in a group, 
90% of what they're saying is the word pigs. And it's like, I agree, they use the word pigs and they should have used the word pigs. However, for an average American who has no understanding of what the Black Panthers were, they see that and they go, oh, they were a, a really scary anti-police group. And so they showed very little. There was like one scene where you see a couple of kids learning in the background. So they showed very little of the actual taking care of the community. And I get that also maybe they didn't realize that, you know, they were doing that because that makes a movie exciting to not show tending to a community. Uh, you know, hey, here's gonna here's five to 10 minutes of us uh, helping old people across the street. So I get that. But I think for your average American that has no understanding of black, if you walk in with an understanding of Black Panthers, then you saw that movie as being pretty great. But if you walk in with no understanding of Black Panthers, I think you maybe leave that movie still thinking, okay, the FBI was bad, but the Black Panthers were also a terrorist group going after the cops. So you end up, you end up even like. <laughs> Agreed. Um, I'm curious. So I know that, um, Joe Biden or the Biden administration recently came out with a a report of people that they consider to be, I guess, on that domestic terrorist like list or or whatever. Um, sorry, I think I have a echo. Okay, it's gone. And one of the groups that was on there is people who oppose capitalism. So it it, it to me it kind of feels like isn't that going back to McCarthyism? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. We are we are in full fledged McCarthyism mode. I mean, it it's it's amazing to see. Uh, another thing that leaked out uh, that was covered recently was uh, the the training manual for the Navy. So you know, a portion of the military. Maybe maybe it's with all the military, but this was leaked from the Navy. And one of the guides had you know questions for you to answer, and one of them was, uh, what type of terrorist group? are the following. And it said neo-Nazis, socialists, and I think the third one was anarchists. And then the co the correct answer was they are a po they are political terrorist groups. Socialists. Just anybody who believes in socialism is a political terrorist. Uh, and anyone who believes in anarchism is a political terrorist. It, so they're training that to the military uh, on top of Biden and his new designations. And it, it is truly horrifying and people should be furious and up in arms. And I know they won't be because besides the fact that the mainstream media won't cover it, we're also in the, you know, the goldfish era when it comes to uh, news. So unless something uh, is new every day, then you'll get outraged for about 30 seconds and then people move on. I mean, hell, look at look at Snowden's revelations. People have moved on from that, despite the fact that it showed the largest surveillance system against America's own citizens, the largest surveillance system in the world, and basically hasn't changed at all. And people just like, oh man, that's bad, let's move on. So getting people to, to focus on something is incredibly difficult uh, in, in that level. And, and yeah, I think it's, it, we are in full full-fledged McCarthyism. I of course saw it because I, I, you know, despite the fact that I'm an American in America covering American news, just the fact that my TV show airs on RT America, uh, it's, you know, I, I deal with McCarthyism every day. It's, oh, well, you must be, uh, you must be Russian. You must be, 
you know, you must be told what to say by Vladimir Putin. Oh, oh really? Uh, despite the fact that I've never been censored and I write all my own stuff and I'm saying the exact same things I was saying with my video series before I ever had a TV show, none of that matters. Uh, just, just straight up McCarthyism. New York Times did a cover of the art section hit piece on me to, to express how, uh, how terrifying I am because I am a, a, some sort of foreign agent, even though I'm an American who was born and raised in America with a military father who, uh, who basically just sees through the bullshit and, and, you know, I'm going to keep going after it. And I've, I've luckily, I've found the one channel that allows me to speak my mind and, and never censors me. And, uh, that's why I'm there. So. Awesome. Lee, I have one more question for you. Sure. Um, given the recent, I guess, uh, disappointment with the squad and everything that's happened through Bernie's two presidential campaigns. What is your take on electoral politics today? So as, as, uh, the, the co-host of my podcast, common censor, Eleanor Goldfield says, I think people should view it like wiping their ass. Yes, you should do it. You should vote. You should, you should talk about who's in office. Uh, but after you wipe your ass, you don't walk out the room and high five everyone and go, isn't that incredible? And let's talk, let's talk about how I wiped my ass for the next four years until I do it again. Uh, it should be something we all do. I've, I've actually done more coverage, I think, than any mainstream media outlet has ever done on getting a legitimate voting system, on how our votes are stolen on the uh, you know destruction of the right to vote for black people, of so many things about how our election system, our electoral system is fucked and rigged, uh, how it was rigged against Bernie Sanders and, and how it's rigged against third parties. And I've done tons of coverage of it, yet I also believe it is a small, nowadays it is so captured by the ruling elite, by the moneyed interests, that it should be 10% of what you talk about. It should be, and and this has been a great interview. You know, we 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 have not uh, spent forty minutes on on what Ted Cruz said. Uh, so that's what an interview should be. That's what our discussion should be. It should be about how to change the world in so many ways that are not electoral politics, because because they have figured out the ruling elite have figured out that the electoral politics is just largely a show. I'm not saying that a bill never gets passed that isn't useful, uh, but it is incredibly rare. And a large Princeton study found that the when the American people want something, if it doesn't align with corporate interests, it has a near zero chance of ever happening in Congress. Near zero, which means basically corporations get what they want, Americans do not ever. And therefore, if we spend our time just focusing on electoral politics then we are, are doing a great injustice to, to all the other issues that are not getting dealt with. We are doing a great injustice to what we could be doing to build community, to build the organizations that we need in order to create real change. And, you know, you saw it during this pandemic, like mutual aids popping up all over the place, people getting together and providing groceries for their neighbors without any thought of capitalism, any thought of how am I going to get paid for this? It was just, hey, we have all the stuff. We throw out 40% of all food. 40 fucking percent we throw out. You're telling me people can't find groceries. You're telling me there's not enough for everyone in this country. It is laughable. It is nonsense. 
It is a systems corruption. And the way we're talking about it by focusing on one sentence that AOC said, you know, and I look, I've done probably two or three videos on AOC out of my hundreds. So it's not like I never mention her. But if everybody, if, if, if these, if these channels that get all of their views off of what AOC said, it's like, that is, you're, you're almost as bad as Fox News, if that's what you're doing. Even if you're correct, even if you're correct in your analysis of how she might have betrayed this interest or that, or done something you disagree with, even if you're correct in your analysis, if that's all you're covering, you're missing the actual issues and the goals and the, the humanity that needs to change in this system. And you're falling for the, 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 the fucking veil. You're falling for the puppet show. You're not looking at the, the puppeteer. You're just, you're just yelling that, that puppet didn't do what I wanted. And you're not looking at the guy who's got his hand up their asses. So. <laughs> Those were good analogies, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lee, um, anything you want to plug or you have coming up and where should people, um, where, where can people find you? Yeah, the easiest thing to remember is LeeCamp.com. I put all my stuff there. Uh, it's got Redacted Tonight, my TV show airs every week. Uh, it's got my podcast, which are Common Censored and Government Secrets, which I do with Graham Elwood. Every week we reveal different secrets of the government. Actually, that's where we covered the, uh, the Tulsa massacre. And, uh, you know, Sorry, all that stuff is uh, is free. So yeah, if you want to go to LeeCamp.com, sign up for the email list. I mean, I'm ridiculously suppressed. So you can follow me on Facebook and YouTube and stuff, but uh, they're not going to tell you when my stuff comes out. So, Gotcha. Everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks, Lee, so much for coming on. It's very educational. Good time. Thanks so much and, and keep doing what you do. You're doing amazing work. And so please keep fighting. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.